Welcome to Super Connected. With me, Tim Arnold, and my special guests. We invite you to join us in an intimate and honest exploration into the theme of connection. What it means to be connected to each other, what it means to be connected to ourselves, and what it means to connect in an ever-changing world. Winner of three Academy Awards for her work on The Young Victoria, The Aviator and Shakespeare in Love, Sandy Powell has also been nominated 12 times, including films Carol, Cinderella, Orlando, The Wings of the Dove, Velvet Goldmine, Gangs of New York, and of course, Mrs. Henderson Presents, set in my beloved Soho. She has received three BAFTA awards for The Young Victoria, Velvet Goldmine and the favourite, and nominated another 13 times. And, of course, in 2011, Sandy was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire for her services to the film industry. Most recently, Sandy worked on The Irishman with Martin Scorsese, which marks her seventh collaboration with the director, having previously worked on The Wolf of Wall Street, Shutter Island, The Departed, The Aviator, Gangs of New York and Hugo. Sandy began her career in 1981 when she dropped out of art school to work with Lindsay Kemp. And it's through Lindsay that Sandy and I became friends, bringing us to this super connected conversation today. So welcome, Sandy Powell. How are you, Sandy? Thank you. I'm well. That was a long introduction. <laughs> it's, well, it's, you know, and we've left out so many other films and so many other parts, but we'll talk about that during the show. How are you? Okay, How is I'm, lockdown? Where are I, you? I am at home in Brixton, uh, South London, for those of you who don't know. Um, and I'm actually ashamed to say I'm enjoying myself. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, I've I've really use this as an opportunity to do all the things I don't normally get a chance to do when I'm working because when I'm working and yeah. more often than not it's away from home um, I that that takes over my life there is not time to do anything else at all and I've realized during this time yeah. that I've I haven't spent this long in one stretch in my own home in years so I've just actually enjoyed being at home and um doing and some decorating right. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, you are decorating. That's right. You said yesterday you, you you've done the ceiling, or are you still working? Uh, well, on I the did ceiling? the first coat yesterday. I'm halfway through the second coat today. <laughs> I'm still and, in my in my painting gear. Yeah, as we speak. Oh, great, great. And 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 uh, am I right in thinking you know, normal life is following and and working with that you know award season and uh, and and working in different countries and and hotels traveling constantly is that sort of there's a huge say? amount of travel yeah there is a huge mm. amount of travel especially over the last few years um and even when i'm working on a job that's that's uk based or london based more often than not i have to go abroad to to meet with actors or directors mm. um but most recent, last few years, I, I have been working 
especially in, in New York quite a bit and I've lived there for, for months at a time. So I'm literally away from home. And then even once I'm in New York, I'm then traveling to LA or to wherever else I have to go to, mm. to either meet people or, or gather together costumes and shop or whatever. But there's a huge amount of flying around, hugely. And and so this is, uh, you know, uh, lockdown for you has been a positive experience. It, it, it has. It's been a little bit of a relief. To, I, you yeah. know, it, it really it, it's just forced me to slow down. And would, especially, would you have slowed down voluntarily? <laughs> probably not to this extent, no, and certainly not in mm. Brixton. Yeah. I probably would have run off to Italy. You know, I I do have a. a a place there as well in the middle of nowhere yeah. so probably that's that's usually the only place that i i can do a lot less than i'm used to that's the it's the, it's the place that i can switch off simply because mm. actually there's no choice because there's nothing else to do apart from cook or garden or you know read. yes i i'm there's a headline that's been going around for a while uh which is that you know coronavirus and this pandemic has been a leveler i'm not sure that's entirely true but in terms of um being able to slow down and uh, uh, that that has that has been a leveler and i think no matter mm. what background we're from we do all spend more time doing <laughs> than we should probably do Okay. I mean, I do love doing. I mean, I do. I realize that I actually mm. run on adrenaline normally. You know, that's that's what I live off, mm. um, which <clears throat> does give me a huge buzz. And I and I do enjoy it. But it's been interesting experience in the other side and actually sleeping eight hours solid. I've never done that in my life. <laughs> never, never, ever been able to sleep through the night without waking up. And I'm just well, sleeping you, eight hours. I can imagine because you, you you're working with international uh, directors and producers so that the, 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 there is no sort of time in, in, in your industry really is there? there's, there's no not I mean everything everything is needed yesterday you know what I mean you're constantly yeah. running to keep up with yourself and that's that's what I do and I must admit I'm looking forward to going back to that as well but yes, I've, enjoyed I this, I've enjoyed this respite yeah um what what do you think uh has been or will be the the deepest impact on your industry on the film industry uh with what's happening goodness it's so hard to tell i think it's going to take a long time to get back up and running again i really do mm. and when it does it's going to be different it's going to it's going to it's going to take a while i mean our industry was one of the first to to completely shut down yes. um you know whatever stage any any production was at that was it it was one week it was there the next it was gone closed down indefinitely um and because when things do start up again, they have to follow all these guidelines, which, you know, when you read them on paper, some of them are like, it, it's impossible. You think, well, how mm. the hell is this going to work? Now, of course, everyone's going to want to make it work. So we'll all do our best. But I think I think it's going to be much easier for much, much smaller scale projects to get up and running before the huge, uh, you know, blockbuster mega films ones with yeah. hundreds and hundreds of extras and massive crews i mean a, a, a normal shooting crew an average shooting crew runs into hundreds of people contained in a small space if you're in a studio or in a location um mm -hmm. and the huge ones i mean the numbers are phenomenal of people that, that are working in close proximity proximity to each other so that's not gonna work it's gonna have to be the smaller smaller projects with maybe you know a very a handful of cast and, and not many extras 
creatively, is, is it a leveler in the film industry? I mean, between, you know, uh, small budget and big budget, is there suddenly a, a middle ground that everybody is going well, to be moving I mean, into, do you think? I don't know. At the moment, it's all, you know, supposition because we don't know. I mean, there have been the studios and, and studio bosses and all the rest of it have been like issuing of having been meetings for, for, for weeks now. And there are yeah. all these guidelines being issued. As I said, some of them are sort of ridiculous and it, and it will it will evolve and it will change and it might get stricter. It might get looser. But I think what's going to happen, which I'm not averse to, is we it might be like going back to the period when I started out in film. In the and late eighties, early nineties, I'd say my first film was yeah. in eighty-five, and then I I started really getting um, recognised, perhaps in the early nineties, mid nineties. At which time there were a lot more smaller scale films being made than there have been recently, and I think it might be it might be that we go back to a much smaller scale, which for me, I'm very mm. happy about. Actually, it's it's a more intimate experience and a more sort of controlled. Yes, because you've worked on some in, in, enormous productions like Gangs of New I York. Have. I mean, that was yeah. pretty astonishing, Mega. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, there's a sense that uh, uh, of what you're saying that feels like there's been a golden era of privilege uh, for a lot of creators in my industry as well with music. Um, obviously, in the music festival um sector is is on its knees now and and that has to be reinvented mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. um well it's like live performances for musicians i mean that's how musicians make their money isn't it in performances concerts well, that yeah. how... well up until the digital revolution it was a a, a a sort of balanced income stream of recorded work and yes live work. and you had to go you had to go and buy your albums <laughs> yeah the recorded work effectively ended as an income stream for most of us um once they you know uh all the streaming platforms yes, start taking yeah. over because you it really take you 50 years to make a, a week's <laughs> money yeah. you know it's, it's a bit of a joke so yeah live has been the mainstay for any uh musical artists and that's gone now too so uh, yeah there's gonna have to be a, a real rethink um and I, it's been inspiring to me seeing a lot of artists performing on line but of course there's no button to to give them any money yet yeah I think and also it's still it. not as exciting as a live performance though is it i mean great that that's that, that people can still watch a performer perform but it's still not the same as being in the same space is it, it? it's interesting it's why i started this show and hence the title super connected uh, but before is I, I started this about two weeks before anything to do with the pandemic uh, in the UK or in Europe, in fact, had um, had occurred uh, to explore uh, the difference between what we do digitally and what we do in real life, you know. Mm. And that's now uh, just come into sharp focus more than ever before, not just for me. I was thinking about it before, but now I think we're all thinking about it, aren't we? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the difference is. What do you feel? What do you feel has been missing? I mean, I know it's been a good. You've had a good experience personally, haven't you, for the last in my lockdown time? Weeks. Yes. Yeah. What's What's missing uh, though? I well, actually, just you know, seeing people in the flesh. You know, yeah. Really. I mean, the only people I've seen are. Um, I've seen my mother from a distance. <laughs> she lives close to me, but we you know actually m oh, wow. myself and my sister put her under lockdown a week before 
um, the government actually announced that all people over 70 had to be under complete lockdown. My sister sort of got really nervous and, and just insisted that she didn't go out. So she's been under lockdown a week longer than anyone else and really has not been. And then last week, for the first time, my sister took her to the park for a walk in the park with her dog. But so we've both been shopping for her. And then going round and dropping the shopping off and then sort of I've been sitting in the car having a conversation with her. But the last couple of weeks when the weather's been good, we've been going round and having um, a socially distanced outdoor lunch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, How which has actually been very felt? nice. Is it you? Well, I mean, it must have felt nice. Um, yeah, no, that, 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 it really does help just suddenly, you know, just being sort of sat down and be able to talk to somebody else and, yeah. and be in the same space. But, you know. Because you're usually working with a huge team of people in your job, aren't you? Yeah, I'm with. I'm usually glued, set, glued to the hip with either a co-designer, like in the Irishman, or um, assistants. You know, but literally, I spend more time with them than I would do anybody I was living with at home. You know, um, that's you're, you're married to those people. You really are, and in very, very close proximity. And that's how I don't know. Uh, how we're going to get back up and running again it's just all the pre-production work all the preparation work that you have to do like talking to mm. tailors and seamstresses I, I want I want to be right next to them touching the, the thing with them and apparently there are all these rules and regulations now where there might have to be a sheet of perspex between us or something you know yes it, it sounds that pretty it, it's um, going to be unusual weird. and even um, talking through a mask you know I mean you know, it's not not easy yeah, I mean, as an artist, um, do you, um, are you, have you been looking at this uh, as an inspiration for what you do? I know some people have. Not necessarily. No, I, I the, not, not. No, I don't know. I guess I, I could only answer that question after I've done another job. At the moment, I'm not thinking mm. about it. I, I can't think how that would affect. The artistic side of my work, you know, the actual design or the design process, I, I don't know. I can't answer that, actually. And and just for um, those followers and enthusiasts and fans of your work, what, what does and has consistently inspired you to create the incredible, uh, you know, visual work? I don't made. think there's any one thing that I can say is an inspiration. I think, you know, I think I take, and I'm sure you do too, inspiration from, from the world, from everything around you. I mean, everything. Yeah. You know, it's just I walk around with my eyes open. I, you know, I watch Do you collect? Films. Do you collect in, in, mm. in, in terms of, you know, um, colours, patterns and the fabrics or whatever? Do you actually collect things? I try not. I use it. Yes. I mean, yes and no. Um, yes and no because after a while <laughs> there is there is so much stuff and I do have to have purges and get rid of things I mean I'm just I'm in a room now where I've got books and books and books and books so I've collected books and I do actually yeah. collect clothes I mean I can't I mean I've got far too many clothes and they're not even things that I wear particularly I just collect if I see something that I love and I think will be useful one day or that will give me an idea for something else and I get it and I've I've had to stop myself doing that in the last yeah. couple of years simply because there's just not enough space it's kind of anything what's going to happen to it all anyway but um, you are you are classic in in that designer being a grand uh, advert for their own work as well i mean that's 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 been consistent for uh, throughout your career hasn't it you you always you always what appear. my oh my personal well, look <clears throat> yeah your personal yeah, look well, is 
I suppose so. Yes, it's because I really love clothes and I love dressing yeah. up and I always have done since a kid. And so I just enjoy that side of it. And I think, why not? I mean, not all designers bother to dress up. A lot of designers think it's the last thing in the world they want to do because they spend their life dressing other people. <laughs> And they, they really don't want to be doing, you know, the same thing themselves back home. I, um, I think I was spoiled growing up in, in Soho uh, when I was younger because all the designers I met literally were um, consciously becoming adverts for their own work. Of course, uh, yes. In the 90s especially. Yes, yes. But there is, yes. there is something that you, that you like collecting, um, and that is signatures. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't not it? all the and, time. Not all <laughs> the time, but, but recently. And uh, I, say, I say this, um, and it's another thing that you and I have both got in common. We, we like the uh, protection and preservation of important spaces, don't we? Mm. Do you want to talk about how, why there were mountains of photographs all over social media of you with various celebrities, some that you work with, some that you, which I presume you haven't worked with, that were at award ceremonies, um, asking them to sign your suit. Sign my suit. Well, my suit signing project um, started out um, at the beginning of the awards season. So that was sort of round about you know, February, mm. March in conjunction with something else that was happening simultaneously, which was um, being part of an organization trying to raise money mm. to purchase a place called Prospect Cottage in Dungeness, which was the mm. home that Derek Jarman, the late director, yeah. who I worked with at the very beginning of my career, bought in the late 80s and lived in and turned it into a sort of um, – I mean, it's like a monument to, to his work and his life. And it's a tiny little fisherman's cottage converted. Um, but he also, the other thing that he did there that was extraordinary was that on this sort of desolate landscape of Dungeness, under the sort of shadow of a, of a nuclear power station, was it's a shingle beach. It is actually the sunniest place in the whole of the United Kingdom, apparently. It has oh, the, the most hours that. of sunshine, yes, apparently. Mm. Um, but nothing grows there. But he actually managed to cultivate a garden amongst the shingle and produce these amazing, well, just the amazing garden, I mean, he, which also involved yeah. um, sculptures made from bits of driftwood and rusty old metal and things that he found in the sea. So every day he'd go out and drag things out of the sea or pick up bits of, of, of driftwood and things that have been sort of brought in by the tide and drag it back to his, uh, his, his house. And then, and then can sort of incorporate that into these incredible structures with God. Anyway, it was just a magical, magical place. And he also did paintings in there and he also wrote in there and he also wrote his scripts. And it was a place that myself and a lot of the people who'd worked with him and his friends spent um, many years going to visit i mean mm. he wasn't there for very long because he died in 94 so it's kind of imbued with his spirit that it's imbued place. with his spirit it actually is as i said you can feel yeah. the creativity oozing out of the walls when you're there wow. and um he left that house when he died he left the house to his then partner who maintained it he didn't live in it he lived in it sometimes but he mm. maintained it and kept it going. And it's been visited by coachloads of tourists, which, you know, for the other people down there is slightly irritating. But um, people have always, you know, it became famous because there was, there was <clears throat> books written about it and photographs taken and it became famous and people would sort of make pilgrim pilgrimages to it. Mm. And Keith, who inherited, kept it going. And then really tragically, two years ago, he developed a brain tumour that <clears throat> was inoperable. 
Yeah. And he knew he only had a few weeks left to live. So he, during that time, he actually sort of asked a few of his closest friends to make sure that the house was taken care of and um, maintained. And basically, it's cut a long story short, I've been rambling on here. I mean, basically, the idea. No, I mean, I, is, I, I'm, is, is I'm hearing this for the first time. So and it's... then it be and then it be used and um, turned into a kind of a museum, but not actually a museum. But the idea is to make it into a residency for artists. Yeah. So for uh, particularly younger people, but artists, whether they're painters, writers, gardeners, musicians, just to have a little place of refuge and inspiration for people to go for a few days at a time or a week at a time. And yeah. also it's going to be maintained um, by, oh, goodness, I, can't, I wish I could remember the name of the company, uh, the, the uh, organization. It's Folkestone Art something or other. Mm. Are also contributing to to keeping it maintained and run, and it will be open to the public for little guided tours and things like that. So that's that's the whole point. It's basically um, to, to sort of promote Derek's legacy, really, so that that the, the world doesn't forget him and 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 everything that he did. Because what Derek did, as well as an incredible array of work. I mean, he was so prolific. He he he's paint, He painted the entire time. He made films. He wrote. He wrote books. He wrote poetry. Mm. Um, mm. He actually championed young people. You know, he was a real lover of young people and encouraged young people, yeah. whoever they were. And on the first film I did with him called Caravaggio, it was 1985. I was only 25 years old. Wow. And I'd say 80% of the crew were under 25 incredible wow, i mean it was most people's first film and so it was it was just we just wanted to sort of give back really that's that's the idea and so um, that was so was that suit, festival se yeah festival so, season signature okay, so suit because i was you know i was one of the, the, <laughs> the close friends of both derek and, and keith I, I was involved in the very beginning with um, an organization called the art fund who are a charity who actually specifically yeah. raise money for artistic causes um and I was thinking, okay, so what? And we were all sort of like put to task, like, okay, we've now got to think of ways to to raise money. There was there was a um, you know an online donation thing that people could do anyway, but we wanted to raise awareness and get people to donate. And it coincided with me getting two nominations, a BAFTA nomination and an Oscar nomination for The Irishman. And actually, what my first thought, which I didn't expect, I have to say. I didn't think The Irishman was the kind of film that would get noticed for costumes, so it was completely a shock to me. Yeah, it was amazing. And my first, <laughs> the first thing I thought was, oh, no, what am I going to wear? I've now got to come up with two different outfits, and it's not just the <laughs> outfits for the, it's not just the outfits for the award ceremony themselves. There's always, like, countless things happening around those events. There's always sort of lead-up parties and, you know, nominees events, and, and you're, you're out there being photographed for days for for a good two or three weeks yeah um so you thought, thought you'd do something outfit. useful and with i thought it. <laughs> i'll do something i thought well i'm not going to spend any money on outfits mm. um i'm going to wear something i've already got is what i thought i'm going to wear something i'm going to recycle something i've already got and then what i found i had was the white suit which actually isn't even a proper suit it's what's called a twirl which is a pattern for a suit mm. Mm. In, in in calico cotton and that's the yeah. pattern that my tailor ian wallace made for me for the previous year for a couple of suits he made me for the oscars and baftas that year and it was and it really 
worked as a, as a thing on its own. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a laugh. I'm just going to go wearing the pattern for a suit instead of actually a really <laughs> expensive. So that was the first idea. I'm just going to go and be a bit, you know, um, yeah, I'm just going to be a bit wayward there and wear something, you know. Yeah. And, and also, actually, it was all very, you know, everyone's talking about um, being, uh, you know, recycling. And all of that, yes, you know what I mean? Um, you know, it's sort of fit, no, fitted in. With... Let's not spend any more money. Let's recycle. Let's be green about this. And I thought, mm. well, I've already got it. I'm going to wear it. And then I thought, it's a blank canvas. I, c- I yeah. could go with a handful of Sharpies and get signatures and that will make a nice signature suit. And I hadn't even thought about then using that to sell. Mm. Um, it's uh, such it like, a oh, wonderful idea. I love and it. Then, yeah. So that, that's how it happened. So basically that's how it happened. I kind of, once I had the idea and everyone thought, oh, great, how exciting. I then got cold feet and thought, what if it, what if it backfires? What if it doesn't work? What if no one wants to sign it? Or if I only get a couple, <laughs> it looks really stupid. Um, but it took off. It, it did take off, and you and, saved, and, and you saved the the place. And we did, yeah. That helped. Yeah. Then it was auctioned at, at Phillips Auctioneers mm. in Berkeley Square, and um, we raised three and a half million. I mean, not on the suit alone, but we raised three and a half million million overall by the thirty first of March, which was a miraculous, actually, because Incredible. that because it also came with the beginning of the whole coronavirus thing so everybody was totally distracted and worried about that and, and our final week of trying to raise the last 300 grand or so was really nail-biting so thought well no one's interested in this anymore yeah but do you but know I, I, I think it's it's a it's a it's i find it inspiring when uh, anybody in the arts or in the entertainment world just sort of use uh whatever opportunity or, or privilege that they have yes. to do something like that it all i always talk about this but it's like john lennon when he he said when they had he said to, in, the, in the late 60s that the press would just write about him in yoko and just say anything every day you know to sell their newspapers which yes. is the main reason they decided to get into bed and promote peace they thought well if they're going to write about us let's let's let's, let's get them to write useful. about something that's useful I, and that still for me is such a um i don't know it's, it, it's a really magical way of turning what's quite a you know i don't know it's a difficult industry um with, it is um, i mean a, a lot very, of people very unspiritual I mean, approach to life and and it, that's a great way to turn it on its head no and exactly the thing about awards ceremonies are they are all a bit daft aren't they i mean you know they are and people think oh my god you're so lucky it's so glamorous you're seeing being mm. there with all those stars actually award ceremonies are quite boring and I always feel a bit guilty sort of saying to people, well, you know what, it's really boring. And then people say, oh, you don't know how lucky you are. And I thought, well, maybe. But this time, with a project, I had the best fun. I didn't mind having my photograph taken. I courted it. I was like, you know, getting people to take my photograph with so-and-so signing it. And it made it really good fun as opposed to, oh, do I really have to do this? Derek Jarman, actually, is somebody yeah. that I've got a weird connection with. I moved to Soho into what used to be his flat at Phoenix House on Charing Cross Road. He lived there in his yeah. flat. That was, that was, yeah, that was, um, um, yeah, Phoenix House, Charing Phoenix Cross Road. House, that was like yes. 90, 90, 94, 95, I moved there. I can't remember. But um, it was when I, you know, moved to Soho and then and then started my career. But I didn't know again. It was a neighbour had said, oh, you know, you used to live here. It's like, who's that? It's like Derek Jarman. I thought, must have a weird connection. So, Goodness. yeah, and I know you were very close, weren't you? Yes, and I know that flat intimately. Yeah. Tiny little flat. And it looks, straight across, the ro- and it looks straight across the road into St. Martin's. That's, which is why school. I moved there. 
Yeah, and that's another weird connection with you and I. Of course, you went to St. Martin's. I went to St. Martin's, yeah. I was accepted to St. Martin's, but I didn't go because I got a record deal. So I, I deferred my entry for right. two years running until I, I just never went. But that's why I lived there, because it was um, it was opposite you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. the art school, uh, which isn't there anymore. Of course, it's foils. But yeah. Um, you, is, am I right in thinking you did you finish your course at St Martin's? I did, well, I my what I did at St Martin's, so I did the I did the foundation course, which was a year. Um, that's a, that's back there. I don't know whether they do that now, but it was you do the, your first year, yeah, doing a bit of everything foundation. before before deciding what you wanted to graduate in, and then you moved colleges, or you either stayed yeah. there and did a degree course there. But I actually moved colleges and went to Central School of Art, which was in at the time was at mm. Holborn, was at Southampton Row to do theatre design and it, I yeah, left that I course that. two years in at the end of I my wish second I, year. I wish I'd gone to be honest sometimes now um but uh, but then but I, I had the slightly I was, was favoring music a little bit more than art so yeah I, I went the music route. and um let's talk about music you told me that one of your favorite songs that means a lot to you is I Left My Heart in San Francisco by hmm. Tony Bennett. What's your connection to that song? Sandy? It's my parents, actually. This is one of the songs that really reminds me of being a kid. Um, my parents had, um, you know, a record player and albums, and they had a, a bunch of Tony Bennett albums. I remember that. I remember it more than anything else. And actually, when my parents divorced, I mean, quite a long time later, the only thing they argued about was the Tony Bennett albums. <laughs> um, so it, it reminds me of, of growing up and of hearing it the whole time. It reminds me of my dad singing along to it, and he couldn't sing. He was hopeless, but he would sing it. Um, it was just something that both my parents loved, and it just reminds me of my childhood. And then, Are your parents both still alive? My mother is. Your, your mother is. My yeah. mother is eighty-two and still alive. And my father passed away in two thousand eight. He um, sadly mm -hmm. he he suffered from Alzheimer's, and and it was all not very pleasant. But okay. actually, in his final years, I spent. A lot more time with him in his in the last couple of years of his life than I had done for many many years, um, and we actually played that song at his funeral. So it, it, uh. it, it you know it means a lot to me, and and it invariably makes me cry now. Uh, so it's that that's quite you... nice. That it's quite nice to 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 be made to cry sometimes. I mem I remember I was in a in a department store in New York buying shoes. <laughs> in Barney's in New York buying shoes once <laughs> yeah. and suddenly it came on and I was just there and then suddenly these tears are rolling down my face and the poor sales assistant say are you okay you can I said it's fine it's absolutely fine just I'll be all right in a minute you know and just it's just this song but it's oh, sometimes God. that's good I isn't it Thank you for sharing it with us and for talking about it as well. I know that feeling. I've, I've, um, not buying shoes, but certainly out and about sometimes <laughs> I've been. Yeah, uh, something hits you. I've, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so probably about half a dozen songs that can do that to me wherever I am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it, that's the power, isn't it, of, um, something that it is that we hear that we're not, you know, it's, it, I've often talked on the show about the difference between being moved emotionally by what we hear. Um, and then differently um, but being moved by what we see. And it, it works in such different ways. But when we hear something, it, it just takes us very deep into ourselves, I think, mm. isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. Which certainly it sounds like that song did for you. Um, it's a bit like I think music in that sense is a bit like smells, isn't it? Sometimes you you can suddenly smell something out of the blue that will take you back to like being oh, four. You know? Gosh, yeah, I have that all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's extraordinary. Child childhood um, smells. Um, childhood. Um, it, 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 childhood is such a um, it's a special time in all of our lives, and it, it's quite often said that um I, th- I can't remember who said it is it ken robinson uh, said that all or everybody's born an artist and all children are artists and there's something to do with the way that society has been set up that sort of knocks it out of that's true of inhibitions happen suddenly don't they that's yeah true. children are totally um, uninhibited and fearless I, I i'm i know i'm very in touch with my sort of childlike imagination and those kind of qualities i'm sure you are as well but one person that is the person that brought you and i together mm. is the, probably one of the greatest examples of living like a free um child with a with paintbrushes dancing through life um lindsay kemp and uh, just uh, you've spoken about lindsay before we've spoken about him but i i just would love to hear how you met and how he inspired you? Well, I first knew about Lindsay because of David Bowie. So as a very young teenager, I mean, I have to go back to the first time I heard Starman on the radio. Yeah. I must have been about 12 or something. And I was sort of, I, it was like I stopped in my tracks. Like, what is this? And then rushed to get my, my cassette recorder and tried to record it straight off the radio like I used to as a kid. Um, and then I saw David Bowie on top of the pops singing the same song. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before or anybody had ever seen before. And then became a huge fan and, and started avidly buying any, um, you know, pop magazine that he was in and, and read up all about his life. And now in doing that, I read that this character called Lindsay Kemp, this, this choreographer, dancer person worked with David Bowie particularly on his Ziggy Stardust phase and then for the concerts of that. And so I, the mm. name was there. I knew about him. I knew what he looked like, but couldn't it, find yeah. him anywhere in the world because at the time he wasn't living in the UK. Um, and then cut to a few years later, it must have been about 1976 or 77 when I was 16, 17, um, I saw that Lindsay Kemp was performing Flowers at the Roundhouse at Short Farm. Oh, God, you went and to that show. went to it. Yeah, and that that's the moment that changed my life. That changed my life, going to see that show, yeah. age 16, because I realised that this was a world I wanted to be part of. You know, mm. I didn't know what, I didn't know what I was going to do in that world, but I wanted it. And I was just so blown away by it and so inspired by it. I wanted to be part of that world. So he, he, he was the glimpse for you that made you want to pull the curtain back to see the whole horizon. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that's yeah. how that, so that was my first, you know, see, well, knowledge of him and actually seeing what he could do. Yeah. And then, and then sort of that sort of promoted me into thinking, well, maybe I'd like to work in the theatre or in the, you know, in some form or another, and then, you know, mm. cut to going to art school and all the rest of it. So I managed to see, I think I saw a couple more. I don't know whether he came back. I saw, I think I went back and saw Flowers twice. I managed to see it twice. Yep. And he was also doing Salome in that in that tour. Um, then cut to, it would have been 79 or, no, about 19, 
eight, 81 actually I was in my it was I was in my second year at Central School of Art doing theatre design mm. and during that time the, you were then encouraged to go and um, get some work experience and you know approach people to go and do like two weeks work experience and, and I said to my tutor but I, I want to go and work with Lindsay Kemp and they go oh he won't be interested in you <laughs> and this is what they actually said to me he won't be interested in you he's gay and I thought well you know what's that oh, going to do with right, it and, wow. and, and, and he doesn't live <laughs> and he doesn't live in London or the UK so how know, old were okay. you how I old were you 20. when you Okay, so just I've got to say this. I was twenty when I said to Sony, "I want to work with Lindsay Kemp on this video," and they said, "No, no, no, he's far too avant-garde for you, Tim. This is not the right thing." (laughs) Isn't that funny? What do what do people know? It's funny, isn't it? (laughs) A few months later, it was the summer holidays at the end of my second year. Yeah. Um, I saw advertised that Lindsay Kemp was doing dance classes at Pineapple Dance Studio in Covent Garden. Wow. And I thought, I'm going. I'm doing that. <laughs> so I went As to a dance class. You went you were doing dance classes. Yeah, I was doing dance classes. And that's yeah. what I did. I, I did like uh you know, and he was there for a couple of weeks and mm. I did I think it was after the very first one. I yeah. took I, I scrambled together a few of the drawings I'd done in college and, and just to sort of I actually had sort of Lost faith in college, actually, I, you know, because I, you know, I had a bit of problem with a couple of the tutors and I was mm. put off. I was put off the kind of direction they were pushing me in. And I didn't really. Were you I a was rebel? A bad, I was you, a bad you... student. I wouldn't say I, I probably <laughs> was a rebel. I was a bad student. And I have since seen one of my tutors in recent years who did say, well, I just wouldn't, you know, I wasn't very good with authority. Mm. And, and I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And it wasn't it wasn't being told what to do. That's for sure. Um, yes. And I think this particular tutor, because she pissed me off all the time, I think either, and, and I left basically, and either either she forced me into leaving because she knew that's what I had to do. I don't know. I never, I never know. I mean, I could give her credit for, for me going. I think she did know that I just needed to make my own mistakes. So mm. anyway, I took these drawings with me to the class and I said to Lindsay, oh, I, you know, I'm a huge fan. I saw you when I was 16 and I really, you know, can I show you my drawings? Uh, and he said, yes. And so I think he invited me out to tea Yeah. and we went out to tea and then it was the summer holidays and we just hung out for the summer. I did all his classes, which were crazy yeah. and bonkers. They would like. go on for hours and he was a bit of a drinker then, which I didn't really realise. But the, cl- the classes <laughs> So you met him. You, you the met the him in the middle of that, yeah. didn't you? classes would go on for two hours and then the next instructor was banging on the door saying it's my class now and he would just keep going and we'd be doing the the can-can around the room um he just couldn't stop and he was hilarious and I I even went to um he went back he was living in Barcelona at the time and he said come and stay in Barcelona so I went and stayed with him in Barcelona that same summer and he said I'm doing a I'm doing a a show I'm doing a, a you know a new show next year come and work with me and I sort of took him at his word yeah and got in touch with my college and said I'm not coming back brilliant and that was it and then I didn't know whether he was I didn't know whether he was going to get in touch with me again and he did and my first job was I was flown out to Milan and we did Nijinsky at yeah. the studio theatre at La Scala so that was my first ever job <laughs> in La Scala which I know it, it was to, it, he talked to me about Nijinsky a lot and that, that was such an important I don't know the architecture of, of the whole 
um, show and the whole idea and the design was, was such a part of him, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I learned so much. I learned more in the first three weeks working with him than I did in three years in college. Incredible. You know? I would say the same thing. And the and the I mean, I I got I got sober, Lindsay. You know, uh, yeah, at, towards the end of his life. And uh, but it it, it 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 seems to me with everyone that I've met who he was close to, um, that he's just such a unifier. Um, he bring he. I mean, you and I met. At his funeral. A funeral, yes. I mean, and, and, and you know, that's two years ago. Now, the it? funeral was an extraordinary experience, actually. It was it? all of those people yeah. coming together and the, you know, the, the bow, the, you know, the, the curtain call around the, around the grave. But you just have felt bad about feeling like you were at the best party on earth. No, you should. You know what? That was a bad year for me. That was the fourth funeral I've been to that year. And actually, all oh of my them were God. good. I know. It was a bad, <laughs> yeah, honestly. It was it was the final straw, but I have to say all the funerals were like that, and it, it's how they should be. It really sort of. I uh, think so. There's a they, there's they a mistake. They absolutely should be joyous. They should be joyous, and the road towards it sh- should be joyous. And I think that's uh, Lindsay um, is a great example of you know death is just another part of life. Mm-hmm. And um, and he brought joy in life, and he brought a lot of joy in his death as well. So well, so and what was together. I mean, I, I think what was most amazing was that he did die dancing. I mean, he had been dancing that day, yeah. and he was at home celebrating. Oh, no. So you know, it was oh. a good way to go. Um, and and do you do do you do you feel that there's enough support for um, Lindsay as an artist in terms of his legacy? Because I sometimes, that's, you know, some of the work that I did with him was also, I mean, a combination of just feeling so privileged to to work with him, but also because I felt not enough people know about no. this extraordinary and the, and the being. Is, I mean, I I am so glad I saw those shows because they are <sighs> so printed on my memory. But I feel. Yeah bad for the people that haven't seen it. and and of course if it, mm. if he was around if he was producing new work now it would all be recorded of course yeah but it wasn't recorded then i mean all we've seen is little glimpses of of sort of quite dodgy you know super eight footage of bits of shows and i wish there was more i wish and i've tried to explain yeah. trying to explain flowers to somebody who hasn't seen it it's really hard actually the impact yes. that it made and it, it it was so extraordinary and so ahead of its time and the little clips Kate, I've seen a Kate, bit recently, you know, it's still shocking. It's still amazing, you know. Yeah, Kate Bush sort of it talks about it in the same way that you do, that it really changed her life. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I think that those shows, was it, did you see at the Regent Theatre? No, I saw the Roundhouse. Oh, you saw the Roundhouse, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he was he was doing that in the year I was born. So <laughs> I think my mother saw it. Um, yeah. Uh, let's let's just talk a little bit more about what's uh, it's a hard thing to ask at the, at the moment, but where you're being um, drawn towards creatively. What's uh, it's like the what's next question? Ooh, well, that's, I, I don't. Yes, I know. know. Who knows one, what's know. next, especially now? But 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 my career has been like that all the way through, and that's sort of why I like it. I mm. like not knowing what's coming next. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't understand that. You know, people people who you know who need security and and need to know when their next job is and what they're getting paid and when will it end and what's it going to be and will yeah. you be able to do it? I actually get a, a thrill 
out of not knowing what it's going to be because it could be anything and whatever it's going to be is going to be a challenge and I enjoy that challenge I think I I don't think I could do well I absolutely know I couldn't do a job where I was doing the same thing week in week out um so yes, I, I really a, don't know what's next. I really don't know what's next. And like I said before, I think maybe the film industry will be changing for a couple of years anyway. I don't think it's going to spring back into what it was necessarily. No, I, think, I, I think there'll be a lot of animation. Um, I mean, there's an animation, there's an anim, animation costume designer friend of mine who's kept working throughout the whole thing, you know. She's making, she's making costumes, designing and making costumes for puppets, for, you know, motion capture mm. things. Uh, I think there'll be a lot more of that. There'll be a lot of CGI, would you would you sort of welcome? Things. Would you would you explore that? Um, I mean, are you are you how tech savvy are you? Or would you explore? I'm you know, not... doing what you do virtually with somebody who, you know, who is uh, very adept at um, you know animation and visual effects. I don't know how that would work. Actually, I mean, yes, I I might have to. Uh, mm. Might have to. I mean, it depends on the kind of animation. I think I'd be more interested in the, in in the, the sort of thing that that she's doing. Um, you know, it's stuff like Fantastic Mr. Fox. Do you know what I mean? Those that that sort of making mm. clothes for that sort of thing. I think because that's how I started. I mean, one of the first things I did as a child when I learned to sew was make little miniature things, miniature clothes for dolls. You know, yeah, I had my yeah. I had my fashion dolls, and I'd make them all the clothes. So. I used to love doing things in miniature. So that appeals to me, but I don't know. I think I prefer working with people. I mean, the whole point I, of it is, it's the whole point of my job, it's a collaborative and it's about working with people and communicating with people. And I think it would be very difficult to be on my own in a room looking at some dolls now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you're, 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 you're sort of, you're poised for the reinvention that, that is going yes to probably, yes probably i think it's going to be place. i think it's going to be something small and gentle which is absolutely fine it'd be quite nice to ease yourself back into it rather than jumping you know yeah now there's another song which means a lot to you and it means a lot to me and i think a lot of people which is of course life on mars by david bowie um what's your really deep personal connection to that song sandy Oh, you know, sitting in my bedroom, age 14, no, <laughs> singing along to all the words, just being yeah. on my bed and singing along and being obsessed and, and, and actually knowing then that I wanted to do something important, that I wanted to be somebody. I was just, it, it just made me full of hope, actually. I don't know why. Mm. It just made me. Was it seeing him? hearing him or the combination of the, the two. combination i mean just the look it obviously is. was amazing but that song is so emotive it's so fantastic mm. it's so huge it's so it you know it just you know again it's a lump to your throat but i mean it can make me cry it can make me happy it's the only song i sing along to i don't think i can sing i don't sing mm. but if it comes on anywhere that's it i'll be up there <laughs> it's the only yeah. time i've karaokeed it's so not an easy song to sing. I've performed it's it a not, couple it's of not, times. I mean, no, it's, no, it's not an easy song to sing. No, I mean I can't sing, but I, you know, you know all the words, and it's it's just yeah. Um, but when you hear it's it, monumental. Uh, it's just sort it's, of a monumental it, piece, isn't it? Do you get? It is absolutely monumental, and I wondered if you get the feeling that I get, which is when when you hear it, it feels like as a door opening to a room in your life that you weren't aware of. 
Well, I think actually that probably explains exactly what I was feeling like when I was 14 sat on Mm -hmm. my bed. You know, there's a whole world out there and I want to be in it and big. You know, I wanted to be. (laughs) I had so much ambition and it just made, you know what, he, David Bowie made everything possible, didn't he? I mean, it was sort of like, yes, you know, Misfits. I mean, I didn't think of myself. I didn't think of myself as a misfit, but I've always been attracted to them. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Me both. I mean, I've yeah, I've pretty much have always been a misfit. Oh, maybe and and attracted to other misfits. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I don't know. Maybe I maybe other people would say I was a misfit. I mean, I I haven't. I don't. I suppose I haven't don't gone down conventional roads, and I think I have always gone out of my way to try and be individual. So I suppose in that sense, yeah, you know, not conformed yeah. particularly. But I wouldn't call myself a misfit. <clears throat> I haven't been disadvantaged. You know, I don't feel like the way that I have, <clears throat> and the way that I, you know, play my life. I don't think I've you know I've been disadvantaged by by that feeling. Mm. Do you, have you listened to Life on Mars lately on headphones? No, I should, shouldn't I? I? I it's the first song that I ever heard on headphones. Really? And, um, when I was probably seven or eight years old, my older brother uh, put these big clunky early eighties headphones, and we said, "Listen to this," and I and close your eyes, you know, and I and it was it's, it's such strong memory. And the the one thing I I, rem- I took away from it was. Um, that Mickey Mouse, that there was something not not normal anymore about Mickey Mouse. Yes. <laughs> I oh, could yes. say Bowie called him a cow. You know, yeah. I mean, I, ever since, I never trusted Mickey Mouse because of listening to that song. Um, uh, but I, I did it again recently, and I just and it and it it's quite extraordinary what um, sound can do to your consciousness. Um, so I know you love the song, so I just thought I'd say I, that. I will check do it, that. Check it out. Well, we don't. Yeah. We very rarely just sort of sit down and shut our eyes and put headphones on and just listen to one song. Um, that's. That, I think that should be like a like once a month thing <laughs> with Life on Mars. Good idea. Just reminding me of where I came from and what yeah, started and- it all out. What kickstarted it all? I mean, in a way, I guess that's going back to that. I mean, David Bowie was the first person I sat up and thought, wow. Yeah. Uh, closely followed by Lindsay, who I, you know, met because of David Bowie. So and he you know, empowered you, you, Lindsay, didn't he? he empowered yeah. you to and do. And then Lindsay was in Derek German films before I met Derek. Yeah. Lindsay was in Jubilee and The Tempest. So it's an interesting. It's an so, interesting observation yes. that there. That it is that um, there are certain types of uh, people that just are meant to find each other. Sometimes I think. Yeah, they're meant to find it, just and they do find each other. Uh, I'm so glad we found each other um, at at the most (laughs) joyful funeral I've ever been to. Um, Sandy, thank you so much for sharing uh, all your experiences um, in your industry at this really difficult time, and I look forward to seeing you um and hearing you with my eyes and my real ears life. when i'm in real life very soon thank Good. you for joining thank super you. connected thank you. <laughs> all right Lovely. lots of love bye, bye.